So let's look first at a little bit of history. What's going on that Paul has gone to the place of Corinth? Well, we get here in Acts, our first reading, chapter 18, verse 2, uh, we get the story about Paul going to Corinth. And one of the things I want to show you is that a lot of times Acts is kind of the history that runs parallel to the letters. So a lot of times you can see in Acts what's going on around or what sets up um, Paul's letters to the various churches around the uh, early Mediterranean world there. Um, so look with me at that first passage from Acts because it'll outline what we're doing here. All right, if I can get it open. There we go. Okay, so you see there, after this, it says, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Um, so what you won't don't pick up here, but what you know, someone with a classical education knows, is this is a real event in Roman history. Claudius, in AD 49, actually expels all the Jews, and that included Christians at this time because they were still worshiping in the synagogues, excluded them from Rome because of a controversy about someone the Roman historian calls Crestus. Who do you suppose that is? Christ, right. So here we see a controversy already in Rome. The Jews are expelled. Aquila and Priscilla, this young couple uh, who are either tent makers or leather makers, depending on how you translate the word, are cast out of Rome and they run into St. Paul at the city of Corinth, right? Um, we also know that this is... Um, these events take place between A.D. 49 and A.D. 51 because later on in this Acts passage, um, uh, the Bible mentions this guy by the name of Gallio. Did you see that? This proconsul, right? So the Jews, are, you know, they're, they're in a ruckus in Corinth and they bring um, Paul and, and a big mob comes before the, 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 the it's basically the, the state capital, right? The seat of power where the proconsul resides. And we know that the proconsul at this time, from secular sources, is a guy by the name of Lucius Junius Gallio Animanius. How about that for a name, right? But the Bible just calls him Gallio for short. And we also know that he's the brother of another famous guy in history, um, Seneca the Younger, who's the son of Seneca the Older. Now I know I'm kind of getting into digging into history here, but I, I'm making the point to you that. You know, a lot of people view the Bible as fairy tales or stories that are just kind of floating around. And sometimes our lectionary makes it seem that way, right? Sometimes it seems so detached from real life, so detached from history. Acts shows us, these people show us that no, these events are anchored in history. And they're verified outside of the Bible, right? I mean, if this Gallio guy was truly a council in Rome, the brother of one of the famous writers of Rome, you can go with confidence to this passage and say, yeah, this happened in Corinth between 49 and 51, right? 
see that? So it's important to realize what's going on here historically is tied into reality. In verse 5, we continue, Silas and Timothy arrive. Paul tires of working with the Jews, too, right? So he goes to the synagogue first, and he tries to persuade the Jews and the Greeks, it says in verse 4. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments at them and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And, and he left there and went to the house of a man, Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Let's stop there for a moment. So Paul, like any man would, starts to become a little bit discouraged, right? Because he's preaching in the synagogue, and it doesn't seem to be making any headway. You know, the the synagogue, God's chosen people, the Jews, are meeting there. They know the Old Testament. They've got the background to the faith. They should, of all people, understand who Jesus is, so Paul thinks. But of course they don't. Some do, but some don't. So Paul here resolves to go to the Gentiles. Um, And Paul continues to preach to the Corinthians. Look, in verse 9, the Lord comes to Paul, and I would ascertain that this, this is because he's become discouraged. And the Lord says to him, do not be afraid. Go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will harm, will attack, or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So here we see Paul being persistent, but getting that boost, that word from the Holy Spirit. Look, I've got great plans for these people in Corinth. Just persist. Just persist. Let's talk a little bit about Corinth. And I know I've given you a lot of history today, but we're setting up a a series that's going to go to Advent. So bear with me. You'll hear some of this a couple times. Why Corinth? Why is Paul here? Well, this is all part of Paul's missionary journeys. This is his Greek tour, if you will. You recall in Acts 16, Paul has this vision from God. And there's a man in this vision in Acts 16 from Macedonia, waving at Paul and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul takes three, ma- three missionary journeys in what the Bible calls Asia, what we would call modern-day Turkey, and Macedonia, which we would call modern-day Greece. So take a look, if you haven't already, at the map that I passed out, and you'll see Paul's missionary journeys. You can see it outlined. He takes three, three actually. This one only has the first two on it. But all around um, the Mediterranean Sea here, up into the Aegean Sea, across into Europe, or Thrace, Thrace is the beginning of Europe there, into Macedonia, and you see the Greek peninsula over here. 
So Paul is going all around that area, taking the good news of Jesus to these folks. And Corinth itself, if you see where it is on the map there, is a bustling city. You see how it's right at like a, a neck of land in Greece between the, the lower part, which is called the Peloponnese, and the upper part? What does that location say to you? Trade. Yeah, absolutely. Trade. And guess what? Is it just trade on land? No, it's trade on sea. So Corinth is situated specifically at the spot here between Athens and Thebes to the north and Sparta and Argos to the south. You probably have heard of those names before, right? And it's built on this narrow bit of land between the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea. That piece of land there is only about four miles wide. So you can imagine the port cities around Corinth bustling and the people taking goods from south to north, the north to south here. Um, and the ancient city of Corinth was actually a rebuilt city. A lot of people don't realize this. Corinth itself, that city, that ancient city, which was an ancient city-state, was destroyed by Rome in 146 BC, so about 100 years before St. Paul's there. When council, here's another one of those great names, Lucius Mummius, and 23,000 legionaries defeated the Achaean League, this army of 16,000. No other man than Julius Caesar refounded the city in 44 BC, and he refounded the city of Corinth as a place for the veterans of the legion to go and live, and as a place for the libertine men and women to go. So you've got a city refounded about 50 years, or uh, let's see, about 100 years before St. Paul's there, and it's made up of veterans and freedmen. Now, you know, what is a freedman? It's someone that's been a slave, that has earned their freedom or been granted their freedom. So you've got this very strange mix in Roman culture of people. And many, because of the trade here, have become rich. They've become rich. They're the nouveau riche, right? They're the new rich. They're the people that have um, sold things, been merchantmen, been traders, and, and all of a sudden they've gone from nothing, literally soldiers and slaves, to people with lots of money and people that have lots of influence in their own city. Interestingly enough, because of their humble beginnings, they weren't thought of very well. So, you know, there's some quotations I want to share with you from the rest of the Roman Empire about Corinth. A contemporary of St. Paul, a man by the name of Cranagoras, a poet and an imperial Roman ambassador, writes of Corinth, Would Corinth that you did lie lower than the ground and more des desert than Libyan sands, rather than be wholly abandoned to such a crowd of scoundrelly slaves? Not exactly something you put on your you know, tourism bureau, right? Your, your brochures. Scoundrelly slaves, come to Corinth. <laughs> and in many ways, Corinth is the rejects of Roman society. But they're people that have become wealthy quickly. 
and they're also from all over the empire. So there's all sorts of gods and goddesses being worshipped, more so than in a typical Roman town, right? Think about it. You've got people from all over the Roman Empire. You've got the Greek gods being worshipped. You've got the Roman gods being worshipped, who generally are the Greek gods. But you've got like people from um, Babylonia, from Syria, from northern Africa, all bringing their cultures together here in Corinth. So when Paul says later on in chapter 8, verse 5, although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed are many gods and many lords, for us there is one God, the Father. When Paul writes that to the Corinthian church, he's writing that, being able to look up and look around, and from where he is in the marketplace, he can see over there the temple to Apollo, the God of prophecy, Son, and Truth. He can see over here the temple to the goddess Aphrodite up on the hill, right? The goddess of sexual desire looking over the town. And many of those who had advanced socially here in Corinth had tried to make themselves respectable citizens. And the way you do that in Roman society is you make yourself a patron, right? So they've got lots of money. They might build a new building for Aphrodite's palace. Or they might build a courtyard for Apollo's temple and put their name on it in a plaque, right? They're trying to show themselves to be true, good citizens, respectable in this town. But Corinth, at the same time, is known for its hedonism. You know what the word hedonism means? It means indulging all your desires. <laughs> indulging all your desires. Notice, you've got a people with lots of money now that came from nothing. What are they doing? What happens? It still happens today. When someone goes from being poor to being rich, take like an NBA star or NFL player, right? They go from you know, living in the ghetto to, to making millions. What happens? Are they good with their money generally? No, they get an entourage and waste it. Somewhere. Yeah, they get an entourage and they waste it. They, they, they just kind of sprint it away, right? You know, and you get people that you scratch your head because they get to the end of their career and somehow they're broke or they made millions and millions. Well, that's, that's what we're dealing with here. That type of person. And these are people are overeating, they're over drinking, they're engaging in promiscuity, they're, um, you know, taking part in all of these feasts at the temples. And it was so bad that a famous poet, an Athenian by the name of Aristophanes, said the word to Corinthianize was like our F word. Okay? So to say to Corinthianize was like... So that gives you an idea of what's going on in the city of Corinth. Plato uses the term... Corinthia core to mean a prostitute. So, okay, you got the verb, and then the noun is to be a prostitute. Hmm, not such good things going on in Corinth. And yet Paul is called to the city by the Holy Spirit. Our Acts reading introduces us to some of the key players and introduces us to Paul's direct call, saying, I have many people in this city. Remember what, Acts, what God says in Acts? 
What's he saying there? He's saying there's many people the Holy Spirit's working on here in this city. Despite what you look around, despite the filth that you see surrounding you, I'm at work. Persist. Stay here. And we get introduced to some key players. Aquila, his wife Priscilla, who I've already mentioned, the exiled Jews. Titius Justus, a Gentile believer in God. That means that he was coming to believe in God as a Jew. Crispus, a synagogue ruler. So Sosthenes, ruler of a synagogue. Remember we talked about Jairus a couple weeks back? Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead by Jesus. And he was a synagogue ruler too. So this is like the, you know, the senior warden of the synagogue. And we've already talked about proconsul Gallio, who rules as Paul's doing this. So Paul writes this letter, this first epistle, which just means letter to the Corinthians, from the city of Ephesus. He tells us this in 1 Corinthians 16, 8. And he's in the company of this guy that we saw in Acts, Sosthenes, who perhaps brought to him reports of the trouble. He writes to this church, which is maximally only three years old. Look with me at the Corinthians passage. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ, Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Where does Paul start out here? Notice, he reminds the Corinthian church that they are sanctified by Jesus with a purpose. They're sanctified by Jesus to be saints. The Greek word here is hagois, holy ones. That they are connected to all those that bear the name of Jesus. And, you know, you and I can easily run through these beginnings of the letters, but Paul's writing them very intentionally here. And, and Jesus, what he's saying to the Corinthian church is, it's Jesus that makes you holy. It's Jesus Christ who is your identity, number one. Number two, Jesus' purpose is to make you saints, to make you holy ones, to set you apart. Number three, that Christians and their beliefs and behavior matters because it's a witness to the greater church Catholic, the greater universal church. What we say, what we do as individuals matter. You see, all that's there in that initial greeting. And this young Corinthian church has got some real problems. Let's jump ahead to verse 11. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You see what's going on in this early church is that arrogance and pride have taken over and driven a wedge between the individuals in the early church. There is a, a personality differences have reared their ugly heads and people's sinful ways have started to creep into the church from out in the rest of Corinth. Paul's reminding them, that's not who you are. That's not who you're supposed to be. 
Look rather distinct from the Corinthians. Be sanctified, be set apart, be a light to Corinth. You have to be set apart in order to be helpful to anybody else. If you're slogging away in the mud, it's the blind helping the blind. What good is it for you to be rolling in the ditch with them? You're not a good example. Jump back, however, because Paul sees so much potential in these early Christians in Corinth. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sees such potential in the Corinthian church. They have this gift of good speaking. They're eloquent. They have this gift of being knowledgeable. They're well-trained. They know God's word. They have this gift of being able to listen, which is no small gift, right? To be able to listen to God, to wait for God, to be able to act with God. And Paul is foremost grieved because there's so much potentiality here. You just can read it dripping from his words. You could be so much, O Corinthians, but you're letting this division and pride and arrogance and personality conflicts and, and divisions about who you follow stand in the way. Why are we going through the book of Corinth here? as we come into the fourth year as a church, as a congregation. Because these are the, the things that assault every church. This is the portrait of us, just as it was the portrait of Corinth. We see all sorts of similarities in our context, right? Lakewood, while it's a great city, it's also a city of bars and churches, it's called. And sadly, in many churches, there's no good news being heard. Churches that are, that are afraid to call out the culture when the culture deviates from what God's word says can't bring good news to anybody. All they can say is, we affirm you, now roll around in the muck. Okay, well, how is that helpful? There could be no repentance. Without repentance, there could be no salvation. And look, I have nothing against very good bars in Lakewood. I like microbreweries just like you guys. <laughs> or the, I think there's a micro distillery going in on Madison Avenue. That's fine. But what does it say if those are the things that our city is becoming known for? It says that we're becoming a city of gluttons, a city of hedons, hedonism, a city that celebrates debauchery. I don't even have to get into sexual ethics, do I? Here in Lakewood? Do you see the parallels between Corinth and Lakewood? And then there's parallels between us and the Corinthian church. I pray, I pray, and, and I know Mark prays, and several of our leadership pray against division in our church, against faction. But as we grow, as we get larger, it's a real possibility if we're not centered on Jesus Christ. There's no new strategy that the devil uses. Therefore, when we look at these books, we see how the devil has tricked God's people before. 
and how we can stand firm. Our call is to speak, is to speak well of the gospel. Our call is to be knowledgeable of all things that help people know and love Jesus. Our call is to listen and wait on God and what ministries he would have us engage in here in our city. And we too face challenges both from the exterior and the interior. Look, addressing sin is never fun, whether it's looking out at other people or in at ourselves. It's never fun to say, what I'm doing is not good, Lord, I repent. And yet that's what we're called to do. And I'm convinced that we, as a new church, as we grow to parish status, will remain faithful, not because we are faithful, but because God is faithful. Look at verse 9 and verse 18, and this will be our closing thought. First Corinthians, verse 9. What does Paul write? He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We can rely on that, friends. God is faithful no matter what we do because he's called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And look at the last verse, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. May God keep us on track. May he defend and protect us as we become a parish. May he help us be bold in reaching out with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who dost govern all things in heaven and earth, mercifully hear the supplications of thy servants and grant unto this congregation family all things necessary for its spiritual welfare, schools to train up thy people in thy faith and fear, ministers to labor in this portion of thy vineyard, a church restored and maintained in the beauty of holiness, Strengthen and increase the faithfulness, the faithful. Visit and relieve the sick. Turn and soften the wicked. Rouse the careless. Recover the fallen. Restore the penitent. Remove all hindrances to the advancement of thy truth. And bring us all to be of one heart and mind within the fold of thy holy Catholic Church. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord who with thee and the Holy Ghost liveth and reigneth one God, world without end. Amen.